<laughs> I love the idea that that's what you assume her nightmares are about, is <laughs> that sound. <laughs> Welcome to Blind Spotters. I'm Amanda Luberto. And I'm Zach Pocklip. And this is our first movie swap. This is what the podcast is going to be about. Yes, we are very excited. Amanda, would you like to say what movies we are swapping? Absolutely, I do. So the theme of this episode is going to be heat check performances, which means a very famous actor is on screen for a very small amount of time and yet sort of is the most famous part of that whole movie. Um, the movie that I chose for Zach to watch for the first time is the classic Silence of the Lambs. And Zach, what did I watch? Amanda, I chose for you A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, wondering how much one can handle the truth. Just two banger films. Yeah, we really crushed it. I thought these were both great. I think something that we'll return to is the thought of like these movies that we know are capital I important capital M movies. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it becomes one of those movies you're a little embarrassed that you haven't seen, which is the whole premise of this podcast, I guess. But um, you mentioned it, why we paired these two together. You know, obviously Science of the Lambs is iconic for Anthony Hopkins and A Few Good Men, iconic for Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. um, turns out they uh they live up to their billing yeah it turns out good actors <laughs> so basically what we're gonna do and what we'll do for these movie swaps is we'll flip a virtual coin because i personally don't have a lot of change around the house and whoever wins the coin toss will decide which movie we discuss first whether that's the movie that person has watched for the first time or it's the movie that they gave the other co-host all right zach flip it and i'm gonna call heads it is flipping it made a little flippy sound <laughs> Uh, it's Tails. Oh, it is Tails. there we go. All right. So, Zach, you get to choose which movie we talk about first. Are we going to talk about Science of the Lambs for your first time, or are we going to talk about A Few Good Men for my first time? We got to go Silence of the Lambs. It's been on my mind since I watched it. That was uh, what like... I was hoping for. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll talk about Silence of the Lambs first. All right. So, start off by letting me know, as the first-time viewer... Give us like a little plot summary. Okay, so Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, is in the FBI Academy at Quantico and is asked to interview the infamous Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who was played by Anthony Hopkins. Uh, Hannibal Lecter eats his victims and he is being held in like a psych ward, jail, Arkham Asylum situation. She is interviewing him to help the FBI find a new serial killer named Buffalo Bill who has been skinning his victims. Around then, uh, Buffalo Bill kidnaps a senator's daughter. And so Clarice, after meeting Hannibal Lecter and getting the whole deal with him, uh, creates a fake, I guess, bribe uh, incentive for Dr. Lecter to like profile Buffalo Bill. And the head of Lecter's prison, who is named Dr. Frederick Chilton, records that conversation on the low in order to rat out Clarice because he knows it's a fake deal. And then he cuts a deal with the senator whose daughter has been kidnapped by Buffalo Bill. Dr. Hannibal Lecter gets transferred to a like really museum-like prison thing in Memphis and is kind of like closed off there. So Clarice sneaks in, talks to him some more, talks about her dreams and nightmares about screaming lambs and Lecter, because they were doing this whole quid pro quo situation, uh, gives her back the case files with a little bit of information. Uh, later, he kills his guards and escapes uh 
puts on a skin suit of a sort and does the meme of like i guess D- dwight from the office got this from him but that is man. correct it is not the other <laughs> way around zach <laughs> anyway eventually the fbi uh, believes they figure out where buffalo bill is but it turns out he's at a different address in ohio which because of this is how movies work clarice has already deduced and is already on the trail so she finds him by herself figures out this guy named james gum is buffalo bill eventually kills buffalo bill saves Catherine, and then at the end when she has graduated from the fbi academy she gets a call from dr lecter who has escaped and is about to go eat dr chilton also known as an old friend how did i do nailed it i thought you did great let's go through your first impressions of the film right off the bat obviously what a movie who knew (laughs) that this famous movie was great um but the other thing as i was watching the movie that it was like not really at all a horror movie it's not scary that much like there's a f- maybe one or two jump scare situations uh anthony hopkins obviously we'll get into him a little bit more i have a lot of thoughts and nuggets that i've kind of discovered 20 years after the fact and but another thing that i realized and this is kind of dovetails or intertwines with um the whole not actually being horror is like kind of my own desensitization to like murder mystery stuff mm-hmm. i thought a lot about the movie seven um by your king david fincher one of my favorites of all time and that movie is genuinely like screwed up like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's a deranged movie but so watching uh silence of the lambs it, it, it kind of felt a little tame like in terms of the grotesqueness of it all, like you would think somebody who was skinning their victims and another person who eats people, it would get kind of gory or kind of like trend into that, but it wasn't that at all. So that was kind of, I don't know, shocking, but um, I don't know. I just kind of considered what I had heard about the movie and this reputation that I had might've picked up that maybe doesn't really hold up as much as I was led to believe. My opinion, because both of these movies are definitely like, if someone said like seven was scary, I wouldn't be like, you're wrong. Like, yeah, it's, it's thrilling. It's suspenseful. There's so much tension in both of these movies. I think of directly the scene where in toward the end of silence of the lambs, where Buffalo Bill is wearing the night goggles and you can see how close he is to Clarice. I think I, I hold my breath through that scene every single time. I've seen it a thousand times. But the thing that I believe makes this not quite a horror movie or not as like necessarily classically horror as some of like, you know, other more famous horror movies is you never see any of the murders. You see bodies, you see aftermaths, you hear about really grotesque things. You hear about the fact that Hannibal Lecter, his heartbeat didn't go above 85 when he ate the tongue of the last person to visit him. That's scary. Like that's a fucking scary idea, but you don't see any of it. You don't watch him eat anybody. He does, you know, you watch him take a bite out of somebody, but that's basically all we see. We see Catherine get captured, but we never watch Buffalo Bill skin anybody, but we do watch him sewing a suit together. So they do kind of play on these things. It also reminded me a bit of a movie I watched last year for the last time, or I'm sorry, I was really shocked by, which was um, Clockwork Orange and the connection between like all of the most insane parts of that movie are also all of the most beautiful parts of that movie. And this connection that Kubrick can make between like beauty and like the grotesque 
And I was thinking a lot about that with Silence of the Lambs because there's so much like the musical aspects are really beautiful in some of the parts that are supposed to be like the most horrifying. And I, I, I thought of that connection on this multiple rewatch as I was trying to look at it with a more critical eye. Yeah, that was the thing. It, it, and we'll talk about this again when we get into the Anthony Hopkins aspect of this movie. All the disturbing parts or, or difficult parts are mm-hmm. also, this is going to sound a little deranged, but like impressive. Like the whole, the fact that his heartbeat doesn't go over 85 while he's eating somebody's like mm-hmm. face off. Like I'm sure my heartbeat gets higher when I was eating like a burrito the other day. Like just everything is so controlled and it's so impressive and you kind of just give this benefit of the intelligent doubt to this psychopath which is a strange thing to unpack which is why this character is so great and iconic it's also why the fbi ask him the behavioral unit specifically ask him as a a as a psychopath and b as a, a psychiatrist to help put together a profile for the person that they're looking for because they can't figure out who Buffalo Bill is based on the evidence. So they're trying to figure out like a, a a personality type that he could be. And so that's why they use Dr. Lecter over any other psychopath that they could be using. Yeah. And that's, that's another part of this. Obviously this is a, a like a serial killer kind of procedural type of story. And because there's a certain type of formula within that you you can kind of like understand the beats that are going to happen, right? There's always the, the part where the case kind of beats the people who are investigating it. There's that aha moment, but this movie, and this kind of gets into like what stood out to me is this movie uh, is so tight. Like it doesn't, it's, it, it feels very efficient without feeling rushed nor slow in a way that's kind of like, the way Anthony Hopkins plays Hannibal Lecter, like it's everything is with purpose. I guess I kind of just segued into the next part of where we go into these movies, but which is like what stood out, but it's under two hours, which I love personally. It's a tight like 152 or something like that. I don't know. It's just something that was like, these scenes are long and they're not, you're so locked in because of the way this movie is made and the way that the performances and Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster are kind of just, playing these games that you're just so locked in and then you look up and it's like, Oh my God, 40 minutes have passed. I think that's something that I knew about this movie, but once again, watching it a little bit more critically this last time that helped play into those things is how tight the camera is on faces all the time. You're not necessarily like a few good men is still like a movie about people talking in rooms And like you could say that Science of the Lambs is a lot of people talking in rooms together, but you feel like you are either Lecter looking at Clarice or you are Clarice looking at Lecter almost the whole time. And that just really draws you into what they're saying. It's really gripping. Yeah, absolutely. That was and that was another thing that um, the cinematography, the the way when Jodie Foster first goes to meet Hannibal Lecter and she is, you know, there's chatting a little bit and he's like, oh, let me see your badge. And she shows it to him and she's probably, you know, 10 feet from the glass because that's what she's been told to do is like, don't get close to the glass. But he is like, no, no, please come closer. Mm-hmm. No, please come closer. And at that point, it like comes in on this extreme close up where you, I don't even know if you can see his mouth. You can just see his eyes and like maybe his upper lip moving 
and and it's like okay we are locked into this movie now like you i have your full attention and you have my full attention um and the way that the movie plays with that throughout the rest of the film hannibal is so captivating and you're always really tight on him for the most part like you rarely Mm -hmm. see his full body i mean almost same with clarice the few times that they do show her full full form is a weird gross term but like like a full body shot of jodie foster is very purposeful to show that she is a small woman in a room full of big powerful men and they do this a lot and it's so cool every single time like there's the scene in the elevator in the very beginning then there's the scene where it turns into like the memory of her dad's funeral and and when she's surrounded by all the cops and yet she is the most powerful and intelligent person in all of those rooms and we know that because hannibal trusts her and and he's the smartest villain in their universe. See, so I saw that because I've noticed that too. Like that's another thing is even from the jump, like as soon as she gets into the Quantico halls and she's like all sweaty and she has just done this like, I don't know, obstacle course that they do to get into the FBI or whatever. Uh, she goes in and like immediately. No. Like people are just <laughs> start she's looking a girl. at her. And maybe, I, I don't know. At first I was like, oh, it's probably because she's this sweaty yes. <laughs> person walking through the hallways. I also thought about Inception because, you know, at the end of Inception where like Leo's leaving the airport and it feels like everybody's looking at him. But then over time, it was like this kind of claustrophobic sense or like there's always eyes on Jodie Foster mm-hmm. and she's always so much physically smaller than everybody in the hallways and the elevators. And, you know, obviously they're always um majority men or if not all men and so you kind of feel like you have eyes on her and you almost feel like kind of creeped out or like worried for what these men are going to be doing or what they're thinking in terms of like do they believe her do they trust her at first uh jack crawford her boss doesn't even really believe her jack crawford like the more times you watch the movie the more times you're like oh he wants to fuck her this is so weird well no <laughs> anthony hop uh, dr Lecter says that like immediately he goes oh young woman i see what jack crawford's doing and jodie foster's like no like let we, please focus on what's going on here um can we talk about jodie foster yeah absolutely okay so personally i don't really have a relationship to jodie foster as an actress like it's not i didn't watch taxi driver when i was 15 or like uh I don't. What, I don't even know what her the accused. It's not also She's in not, uh, Panic Room, a David Fincher movie. Yeah, but she, I don't. This is my relationship to her. Like you have a note in here about her accent, and I always have to remember that that's not how she sounds. Like to me, that's what Jodie Foster's voice is. That's fascinating. It was the only thing I knew about her forever. Like she was Clarice Darling for so long. And then like she was just at an award show this year. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's not at all what she sounds like. <laughs> that's so funny because I never considered this as a maybe iconic performance of Jodie Foster. Like, I just when I think of Jodie Foster, I just think of the idea of Jodie Foster, this actress who has been in Hollywood for decades at this point, who's always been famous for like her dedication to the craft and her, I guess, power on, on and off screen and all these things. Um, I don't know. I I know it probably wasn't an intentional choice where her accent kind of floated in and out. Um, But I did find out or I did read that Anthony Hopkins kind of ad-libbed that moment where he was like, you're from West Virginia and you're like 
two degrees separated from white trash and you're trying to hide that accent. And apparently Jodie Foster is super shook, like in those <laughs> improv moments, right? Where you're just like, wait, is he, mm-hmm. he, he's making fun of Clarice's accent, right? Like not mine, but I still need to Not me there. doing this accent. <laughs> um, it, it was just something I noticed. And it, it's not like the worst accent I've ever heard. That's probably like, I don't know, Jack Nicholson in The, the Departed where he like, becomes don't trash on my movie from the bronx for like 30 <laughs> seconds but but anyway yeah uh but other than that like so um, immediately i just am like oh jodie foster what a what a star like she has already won an oscar at this point um mm-hmm. and she already has probably her most famous role debatably in taxi driver but that was just something where i'm like man if i had seen this in the 90s i would have been like all in on jodie foster she wins the best actress award for this at the oscars and that's like two mm-hmm. in her last two movies or something like that and, and then she kind of has just like a weird run um, in terms of other stuff that kind of stood out, obviously Anthony Hopkins. And I guess we can kind of get into it right now. Who also um, just won his second Oscar, not in two movies though. <laughs> yeah. It took him a long time, but Anthony Hopkins to this point is kind of just like a working actor. Like he's just in a lot of things. He's been in the elephant man, which was the movie that kind of got him brought to the attention of the people who made this, the sounds of the lambs, but he wasn't the first choice for Hannibal Lecter, which is fascinating. Um, I think there's... I can't even like imagine anybody else at this point. Well, the thing is, I can imagine it, but like it's such a sandbox of a role. I think like Dr. Hannibal Lecter feels like such a sandbox where if you put other people that were considered like Sean Connery, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Daniel Day Lewis, and you know, you have those five actors, and it's like those are five very different interpretations. Even if you put like Jack Nicholson in this movie where mm-hmm. he's, where he's just like, I'm really tempted to do a Jack Nicholson impersonation, which is not going to be good. I mean, That's up to you. <laughs> I wouldn't, but I don't have a Jack Nicholson. I'm not good at impressions. I don't know. It's just, it, it this just feels like it could have been a very like embodying performance or it's an embodying character where you just put your full self into it right like when i think of anthony hopkins even before i had seen this movie i thought i thought of dr hannibal lecter and like the three scenes that i had seen from the movie beforehand um Mm -hmm. but he just plays it with such like precision and like you can i don't know when he first shows up on screen like she turns the corner after seeing migs in the in the psych ward and he's just standing there like very taut yeah totally i think one of the other like best parts is um obviously like i'm really into true crime and this movie is like a uh a true crime junkies like not the podcast true crime junkies but (laughs) people who like true crime um love this movie and i think it's because he isn't based on one person neither is buffalo bill like there isn't like a direct relation there's a couple of different people who very famously played different sort of roles in influencing both of these characters. But for um, Lecter and Andre Chikatilo, who was a, uh, a cannibal in Russia and is probably the most dangerous man who has ever lived. He killed upwards of a hundred people and ate almost all of them. He is a horrible human being. Um, but he has like no personality in the way that that he's not as respected and smart the way that Lecter is. And I think that adding that sort of like layer is is so interesting. And it would really take someone like I don't know if I would believe Robert De Niro, A, eats people and B, is a psychologist. And no offense to Robert De Niro, an actor I like very, very much. But I think at this point, people had such a relationship to him as a movie star 
that it would have been more difficult. It would have been like, look at Robert De Niro playing this role instead of this is Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And, and the, like that intelligence aspect of it all, right? Like where you believe this man is a psychologist, not just a doctor and not just a serial killer with a PhD, but he has treated, like he is someone that maybe the FBI would have gone to before he was caught for the sake of behavioral sciences, right? Like, Another thing I love about this performance from Anthony Hopkins is is his voice. It's so specific. And just I guess I guess this is fair. I guess I'm like kind of going back on my own point about Jodie Foster and her accent <laughs> and you not knowing she had an accent. It's like I forget that Anthony Hopkins doesn't sound like a creep. Yeah. <laughs> like like I, I went and watched his Oscar speech uh when he won. And it's actually very similar, like his delivery yeah. and like just overall demeanor as to when he posted that video on Twitter from Wales uh, after winning the Oscar for the father, where he's just like pretty taken aback. And he's like, he mentions Wales and then, you know, kind of goes into thanking people. Um, but his voice, when I looked it up, he had kind of combined um, the voice of Truman Capote, Catherine Hepburn, and the, like the, what's his name? Hal mm-hmm. or from 2001 a space odyssey and you can kind of like that hear makes a lot of sense each, each of those elements like especially in the first scene when they first meet he's very like robotic mm-hmm. and sing-songy in the way he goes about it but once he kind of gets into the interplay and the you know exchanges i i don't know i could totally hear the katherine hepburn of it all like which i personally love you know that mid-atlantic accent just as a throwback in, in movies and stuff but yeah i think of like the voice is so important because i guess there's all these conversations but it's so specific yeah what were some of the things that have really like stuck with you over the last couple of days since watching it for the first time yeah so you you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about jodie foster but the kind of like point of view in the movie like you're the the character is always talking to you in a lot of these conversations yeah it's like, a very direct to look, the camera looking straight down the barrel of the camera I mean, obviously, this is an extremely like mid twenties thought, but like I thought of Moonlight a lot, mm-hmm. um, in just the way that and Barry Jenkins kind of utilizes that. Jonathan Demme, the director, who I don't think we've said his name yet, but is the director of this movie and one best director for this movie, um, implements that a lot, especially in like his next movie, Philadelphia. But just so there's the actual laid out perspective of that, and then on top of that, just kind of the we I, I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm in. Clarice's point of view like it feels like all eyes are staring at her just the com- the the situation is dwarfing her people are looking past her and through her that whole aspect of it is very interesting to me uh just for perspective this is what it feels like to be a woman in a male dominated uh world that's fair just- <laughs> <laughs> gaze you're wondering but i think that that adds like a, i think it was very purposeful like i don't think accidentally you they like discovered the fact that watching the movie back oh wow this is sort of the like the aura you get from the movie like i think it was very direct to like the cinematography underplays clarice while Jodie Foster continuously rises to the occasion that Clarice Starling is. And I think that that's like extremely powerful. Um, I did want to ask, uh, we we hadn't uh, written it down, but I did want to ask something because obviously we both know that uh, Anthony Hopkins' performance and Hannibal Lecter became like one of the most infamous movie villains of all time um, and things like that. But do you think, 
what are your feelings on the fact that he's not really the villain of this movie? Uh, Buffalo Bill is kind of more of your quote unquote run of the mill murderer. Like in terms yeah. of the, I don't know if you watch he's the serial killer, he's the one you're trying to get. I, his motivations and, and and the reason he's doing is kind of like muddled and like hasn't aged super well, um, depending on yeah. how you see that stuff. No, it just um, hasn't aged super well, period. Yeah. And he's just not as interesting. He's just, I kind of start like, there were parts where I was laughing at him when he was like, talking about it puts the lotion on and oh his you know, accent is the craziest part of the whole movie <laughs> we want to talk about accents I, I, he's he's going for it and he and he's like very like ted levine's very committed in the performance and it's such a i guess a juxtaposition to hannibal mm-hmm. lecter who knows exactly what he's doing why he's doing it what it's for what his motivations are as opposed to the serial killer buffalo bill who is you know kind of just has his goal and yeah that's so interesting it's kind of like darth vader is like kind of the villain but not really it's really the emperor in star wars Mm -hmm. but if you ask like who's the villain of star wars i would say darth vader and then i would be like wait maybe (laughs) (laughs) like he's the big bad that we're supposed to remember from that series yeah and it's not even like hannibal lecter's in the way of clarice right like clarice is going to him for help and he's Mm -hmm. pretty down like he is pretty down to help her as long as he gets to learn some stuff about her and and then eventually he gets you know escapes and goes out to the world but um yeah yeah that is fast i did i i always forget that that he's not the villain of the movie he's just he is a villain and he is in the movie but we're not necessarily going through like his villainous timeline it's like it's like a team up it's like a it's not a buddy cop but like it's reluctant partners but 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 it's like a reluctant partners thing where it's like okay we're gonna work together and and then we're gonna go away and Mm -hmm. you know probably think about each other a lot i don't know (laughs) (laughs) so i do want to talk about one more thing about this movie before we move on to a few good men but it did win the big five which has only been done three times altogether a a jack nicholson movie uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest was another one um as we're talking about him in this podcast but it won best director best picture best screenplay best actor and best actress uh do you think it was deserved does that feel right i guess like the oscars are always fraught when it comes to like what should a movie have won uh and like we know that a lot of times the quote-unquote best movie of that year rarely wins you know Mm -hmm. um but i mean obviously anthony hopkins uh i think deserved it he is his performance is iconic it's the one you remember it's the one you think about it's the thing you take away from the movie i thought it was a little interesting that um jodie foster did win for, for her performance um i think she was supported alongside like the two from thelma and louise and then laura dern bet milder was in there but at this point jody fought like, i think this is the movie she does after the accused and she at this point is just one of those actresses where you're like well we can just give it to jody foster we like her she's probably next in line mm-hmm. um the other ones nominated for best picture that year were beauty and the beast which man, what a time when what just a, a Disney- time when both Silence of the Lambs and Beauty and the Beast could both be ever considered Oscar like best pictures. Yeah, um, JFK, which is Oliver Stone directed, The Prince of Tides, 
which I think has Barbara Streisand and Bugsy, which is a Warren Beatty movie. Um, so of those movies, like Silence of the Lambs in my head is the most famous. It is yeah. the most iconic, I guess. Um, yeah, it definitely is a clear winner for me. Um, it it just holds up. I've seen it a thousand times, extreme rewatchability, and it's just good every time. I would say John Singleton and Boys in the Hood, I feel like is should be up there or at least nominated, but then we can get into the whole Oscars and uh, its problem with diversity and all that stuff. But uh, it's crazy that no movie has done it since then. You know, there's been some great movies and there's been some great um, performances and stuff in, in great movies. And I don't know. I mean, I think it definitely has to do with the fact that there are types of movies that the Oscars consider to be Oscar movies these days. It, like I said, like you would never have Beauty and the Beast and Silence of the Lambs today as Oscar big pictures. And that's the other part. This movie was released in February, which, and it's a horror movie. It counts as a horror movie. And and it's a little interesting mm-hmm. thinking about that too, because Get Out was nominated a few years ago, which is also a horror movie and which is also released in February. But there was such momentum behind that. And I guess this one had momentum too, because it made like 200 something million. It made a ridiculous amount of money uh, at the box office. All right. Well, Zach, uh, how do you feel about it? Just in general, a quick recap. Yeah, great movie. I'll rewatch it again. It's funny how they've tried to revisit it. Like they made that movie Hannibal. Mm -hmm. Did you see that movie? Have you seen that movie? Mm -mm. And they also did uh, Red Dragon with um, Ed Ed Norton, um, which was a supposed sequel, but I have not seen that as well. And then there's the TV show with Mads Mikkelsen, which I don't know. I watched like probably the first season of that. That was good. This was a book before it was a movie. It it did win for best adapted screenplay. And a big change from the book to the movie that I actually really respect is that in the book, they fall in love and they end up together. And I think that is disturbing. (laughs) In the book, are they, do they have the same age difference? I am unsure. have not read the book. Um, And I like that they changed that. There's obviously tones of it. Of course, there are, there's tension between them that is admirable. Like I think that they admire each other, but I think that's way different than them like falling in love with each other. Definitely. Um, before yeah. we before we round this conversation out, um, I had two more things. Uh, one, is this your favorite Jodie Foster performance? Yeah. I just I have so few Jodie Foster performances in my brain which maybe is my fault I really like her but like every movie I see her in I'm like oh it's Glory Sterling (laughs) (laughs) so I personally love Inside Man the Spike Lee movie with Denzel Clive Owen um and she gets to play like the smartest person in the room type character um but it's it is kind of wild that she's not in a ton of movies and then the second thing like it kind of undermines the whole like haunting moment of like Clarice finally getting to look down the the barrel of the camera and talk about the dream that's the nightmare that she has every night where she hears lambs screaming which was a traumatic moment in her childhood have you ever looked up lambs screaming um no i'm uninterested because it sounds bad <laughs> I, I i looked up at least three or four videos of lambs screaming and sure. if you ever want the time to do it it kind of makes the movie a little funny i don't think um, i think like human screaming just... and then human being murdered screaming might also sound different <laughs> No, 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 no. But like, if you look like, it's just, it's just funny if it is. All right. Are we ready to get to the second film? 
I need a break personally to emotionally expunge myself of all that. But yes, I am ready to That's talk fair. about a few good men. This episode of Blind Spotters is definitely not sponsored by the Writer's Block Bookstore in downtown Las Vegas, but if you're looking for a place to find your new favorite book or just want to browse the shelves, the Writer's Block is highly recommended. Go there, pick up a coffee and a baked good from their coffee shop up front, and browse their vast collection from novels and memoirs to poetry collections and graphic novels. Also, don't forget to swing by and say hello to Baron, the best bookstore bun there is. I don't have a discount code to share, but just a reminder to support your local independent bookstore and local businesses as a whole. Ted Hut, podcasters on deck. Uh, you can't see as this is an audio thing, but I did salute. <laughs> Amanda, you watched Aaron Sorkin and Rob Reiner's A Few Good Men. What happens in this movie? What a great question, to be completely honest. <laughs> <laughs> Here is my attempt at a summary that if I was trying to sell somebody on this movie for the very first time, I don't think that they would be interested. But I'm not a summary writer. I am simply a podcaster. So Joe Galloway, who is Demi Moore, brings a case from Guantanamo Bay where two Marines had killed a fellow Marine who had wanted to switch out of his camp to her superior saying that she wanted to be the lead lawyer. Instead, that person assigns young hotshot Daniel Caffey, who is Tom Cruise, with Galloway as sort of the, the assistant. Caffey is legacy. His father was a lawyer, and his father was also in the military. These two, Galloway and Caffey, are, are in the Navy and not the Marines, which apparently was very important. And... But he doesn't want to seem to be he doesn't seem to want to be there. Um, he's always trying to close the case with a deal rather than go to court. He's famously playing softball instead of like paying attention. And they travel with Weinberg, their other assistant, to Guantanamo to investigate more um of what happened. And that's when they meet Jessup, who is uh Jack Nicholson's character, who we had seen earlier in the film say that. They should not move Santiago off the base because essentially that's not what Marines do, that he should be trained, he should push through it, and that they can figure out a way to sort of like refine him instead of move him off base. Um, they go to court. Things are looking pretty grim for a bit. Uh, Galloway thinks that they're going to lose. Cruz is really discouraged. You can tell there's a lot of like, my father wouldn't be proud of me. Um, but he puts the pieces together due to the flight patterns that Jessup had to be the one to call the code red, which is something we will talk about later. Calls him to the stand, even though it is extremely risky. Uh, he's told he cannot handle the truth. And then truly the end happens um, up on your screen. How did I do? <laughs> you, you did pretty good, but you forgot the critical element of the court case. The two Marines, did they were they arrested? Or did they go to jail? No, they were dishonorably yeah. discharged though. That's true. That's true. So they won the case. And uh, yeah, he was, Jessup was found guilty um, of, of being the one in charge of the situation. The two Marines that Galloway and Caffey were representing did not go to jail, um, which I have a lot of questions about later, but yes, <laughs> we can get into that in a minute. <laughs> so Amanda, after watching this uh, 
famous movie and seeing the famous scene, um, I'm going to ask you nicely if it's not too much of a problem. What were your first watch impressions? Yeah. So I think the thing that uh, stood out to me the most as I was continuing to watch it is there's such like a that like hazy gloss that is on 90s films that just is so comforting to me no matter what movie it is. Tom Cruise. What a guy. Uh, a, a man I always believe is a human acting to be a human who is acting to be other humans. Um, either he is so strange to me. Like if you met Tom Cruise in person outside of a film set, you would still feel like he's acting. That's my impression of a man I've not met. This might be the, one of the last very humane performances of Tom Cruise. Like so, okay. He- so I was thinking about that, and I literally Googled when did Tom Cruise join Scientology. <laughs> because i was like is this the last thing he did before scientology and it was the first thing he did after he joined scientology he joined in 1990 and then this movie came out in 1992 so it was like they're connected we don't need to get it this will turn into a scientology podcast if i continue down this road but um another thing that i had trouble with was i kept mixing up Kiefer sutherland's character and kevin bacon's character two men who don't actually look that similar but when you put them like in a in the identical uniform and give them the identical haircut it was confusing to me (laughs) Wait, did you, like, how long did that confusion last? Like, three-fourths of the movie. Like, a lot of the movie. Like, a lot of the time. (laughs) Like, did you think, did you think Kiefer Sutherland's character was, like, leaving a pickup basketball game? I thought Kevin Bacon's character was an asshole. Like, I thought (laughs) Kevin Bacon's character, like, showed them around the, like, base and was like, this is what code is about and blah, blah. And I was like, this is so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Anyway, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Another Tom Cruise thing, uh, similar to how whenever he is in a movie drinking alcohol, it is clear that he has never had alcohol before. It's clear that he's never played baseball before. Um, That's not (laughs) how you hit ground balls. Like you're like at a batting range. It was very weird. Um, uh, Another thing that I was thinking about was, uh, oh, this is just, this is like a, these are nitty gritty things. Why are there two people on trial? Like if you wrote the movie or whatever, if really only one guy does the acting, is the movie different if that other guy is not there at all? Are you talking about, so there's Hal, there's, there's Hal Jordan. The guy yeah. Then the other talk, guy, the guy you don't know the name of. <laughs> no, it's Loudon Danny and his aunt's name is Ginny. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you remove that character, does it matter? Yeah, because it's important. It's be- it's important because it's all about the fact that they followed orders. So Private Downey is part of killing Santiago because his superior, Lance Corporal Harold Dawson, is following the orders of Kiefer Sutherland's character, who is following the orders of Jessup. And so, but if it if just stops, old- if it just stops at the one guy that killed him, is the movie different? A little bit, because when you because you don't get the part when. Um, Joe Galloway has Downey on the stand and then you find out that Downey actually wasn't in the room whenever Kiefer Sutherland told Hal that to give Santiago a code mm-hmm. red, which then leads to the fact that they need to put Jessup on the stand. Okay. Like it is a crucial I'll part of, of the movie and the whole chain of command that comes into the play of the case. Okay. I'll give you that one. All right. So I have one more positive one before I get into more questions that were my first impressions. 
I really like Rob Reiner and he's a great director. He's made a lot of my favorite movies or not necessarily my favorite movies, but movies I really like. And this movie looks and feels like a Rob Reiner movie. One of the first things I was thinking about was uh, this is one of the few times that I can tell like the writing feels very direct to Sorkin and the look feels very direct to uh, Reiner and the only other time where I can remember such a distinct like coexistence is actually in the social network which is also uh, a Sorkin writing it's Sorkin writing and Fincher directing which is another director I like uh, understand and can recognize the look of very easily um, I really liked that aspect of it that it really did feel like a marriage of two different styles and it they weren't clashing at all in my opinion yeah, this every time I've watched this movie or The Social Network or like, I don't know, The American President, and then juxtaposed to like Molly's Game and Trial of the Chicago 7, where it's like, man, I really wish Sorkin would just let other people direct him again, mm-hmm. because they kind of rein in some of his Sorkinness. Totally. Um, which I'm a pro Sorkin person mostly. I just didn't love his last two movies. But yeah, Rob Reiner just has a hell of a decade Like going into this movie. Yeah, that, like, if you look at his filmography. That's like one of my uh, biggest takeaways uh, was about like Rob Reiner's career or one of the things I've like thought about the most. So my two last little like nitpicks, I guess, are things I didn't quite understand. I'm going to go back to the two Marines for a moment. So <laughs> <laughs> the one Marine that's on trial, uh, Dawson, he has this big scene in the original uh, jail cell with uh, Tom Cruise's character where he's like, I'm a Marine and this is the code and this is what's going to happen. And I'd rather die than be discharged. And like, if if not for being a Marine, what do I have? And he has no inclination throughout the entire film that anything would satisfy him except for being a Marine and that he stuck to his guns and that he followed orders. And there is absolutely not even a, 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 a look, a side glance during somebody else talking that would indicate that he might have a change in morality. And then at the very end, he is like, you know what? We should have stood up for that guy. Cause that's what being a Marine actually is about. And I was like, where'd this come from? Who did you talk to off screen where you realized this information? No, he sat there the whole time. He is disillusioned a little bit about the fact that, he, you know, he just took an order from a superior and then he has realized that one, that order was wrong. Mm-hmm. And he realized that Jessup is pretty crazy mm-hmm. and kind of realizes that the, ends don't justify the means yeah yeah so i I just thought i was like when he said that i was like since when do you feel this way (laughs) where did this come from you've been kind of there the whole time you've been kind of a jerk about how much like you don't care that you killed this guy because you like really were just like all about following directions and that you'd rather like nothing on planet earth would be worse than being dishonorably discharged to a point where you almost went to jail and didn't let Tom Cruise like represent you. You'd rather be in jail for the rest of your life than be discharged. And then at the end, he's like, you know what? We should have done the right thing. It's like, wait. Well, I think the other thing you have to think of is, and this is me coming to the defense of Aaron Sorkin's screenplay. So Harold Dawson might've been under the impression that he was doing this code red thing. So as to cover up the fence line shooting. So the military aspect is big. Like it's why Harold Jordan and Downey didn't want to 
plead not guilty. Mm -hmm. It's why, you know, it's part of why Jessup doesn't really like the Marines. They have that, I think Kiefer Sutherland says that dig where he's like, I like Navy men. You know, every time we need to go fight somewhere, they give us a ride. Yeah. The Marines at Guantanamo Bay are Marines. They are yeah, capital M Marines. Like fanatics about being Marines. And that matters in this movie. Granted, yes, there's parts about it that are extremely Sorkin and it's like monologues can change the world. That's the other thing that I like really do have to like keep in mind that like, I mean, Sorkin is, he makes a fantasy situation out of everything he writes, which is great. Like, I love that there is a television show I can turn to where I'm like, these people are doing the news and they are respected. <laughs> And I'm like, nice. And like, I, I love that about Sorkin, but it definitely, that is like an aspect I had really remembered where I'm like, oh yes, like they, they always are doing the right thing. And I guess that's what the character of uh, Weinberg is supposed yeah. to be. Like the person who thinks like, these guys are bullies. Like what's the point? And over the course of the movie, they break down the reasons why these guys actually are not guilty. I mean, obviously as you go through getting to the uh, it goes all the way to the top like that aspect is is what they're trying to like unveil some things that stood out to me like i mentioned um the distinct styles of both writer and director and them working really well together i thought that was really really beautiful um i think that so i really like theater and like live theater and there were some parts uh, that were changed for the film and there were some parts that were straight from the play, which I thought was noticeable. And maybe if I wasn't as into straight plays as I am, I wouldn't have noticed it. But something that I liked that they changed for the film and like the adaptation was that there was a lot less um, obvious staging like in one night in Miami, it is like almost like, and fade to black. We are in a new location now. Like it's not that obvious, but about halfway through, I was like, "Oh, this is a play. I understand what's going on." Mm -hmm. I did like that for the movie that there were some transitional things. You see them like driving in the car, and you like you see them like doing a little sork and walk and talk. Like that's really good things you really couldn't do on stage. So I li I liked that adaptation because sometimes it could be like a little too clear since you have watched it what is the thing you've thought about the most other than tom cruise and how much scientology played into his performances daniel Cassidy. So i think the the three things i've thought about the most are all sort of intertwined and it's where it came in cruise reiner and sorkin's careers so i'm going to start with sorkin we just mentioned this is the very beginning he was the newbie this was the first thing that he had made and a that is so like admirable <laughs> this is the first movie he wrote it's a lot of movie and it's very well written and i mean what am i gonna be like the nine millionth person to be like aaron sorkin knows how to write yeah it, it's great but <laughs> he was the new guy on set and i think that that's really really interesting and then you kind of get to tom cruise who's sort of like he's really young but he is ramping up like he before this, he had done a handful of other things, but the things that were most famous was he did Risky Business, Cocktail, and Top Gun, which are obviously very famous movies. But they're very fun. They're very flashy. They're very youthful. And and there's, there's serious moments. He did Rain Man ahead of this one, which is a lot more tame. And there's like serious tones to that. And he can play like a serious character. But even then, he's like the flashy brother that's like trying to like get what he wants out of the other brother. 
and there is definitely aspects of that in the in this character you know he's flashing the tom cruise fake smile and he's playing baseball and he's like loosen up we're gonna be fine like that's definitely his attitude but i feel like this was the first movie where it is like tom cruise can memorize lines and he can act like this is tom cruise as a serious actor to be taken seriously so in the 90s he's still working with like these great he's still seeking out like great directors right he works with um oliver stone he works with rob reiner here he works with um stanley kubrick a few years later uh yeah and it's before he just becomes like an a-list blockbuster movie star well, i think this is like he, he is like on that ramp like that's kind of what i'm saying like he is not at the top yet but he is inignorable in this point of his career and i think that this like really cements like he can really diversify the types of roles that he has chosen for because of how well he does in a few good men it's also just funny watching this performance because in 1992 he you don't know him as like weird alien as a human tom cruise type things that you kind of think of because when you watch this movie now you're like oh he's just doing tom cruise stuff mm-hmm. but like you said it, i guess it is kind of like a revelation or not so much a revelation because he is super charming in like cocktail and top gun and stuff like that but he does that and he also goes toe-to-toe with jack nicholson in this movie so but i think this is one of his first performances where it's not solely based on his charm like he is a good lawyer who is charming and you have to kind of break through that where the rest of these movies it's like yeah he can fly a plane but damn can he play some volleyball like look how fun he is what a charming dude and then i also wanted to mention uh rob reiner i think at this point personally rob reiner is sitting at the top he had already done when harry met sally he had done the princess bride and he had done misery he's won awards for almost all of those movies uh there's some of pop culture's most loved films and he could kind of do whatever he wanted at this point he didn't really have to prove himself anymore and he just kind of went for it and i i think that's awesome yeah and and it's fun because like in The Princess Bride, he works with William Goldman as a screenwriter. When Harry Met Sally, he has Nora Ephron. Misery, he has Bill Goldman again. And then A Few Good Men, he has Aaron Sorkin, this kid. But Bill Goldman, lord of screenwriters, still has a hand on this. He like does a rewrite that Sorkin loves so much that he puts it into his stage play. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, there's always like a Bill Goldman hand in so many movies. We didn't mention it, but he also has a hand in Silence of the Lambs, which talking about the tightness of that movie. And so... I just wanted to shout out William Goldman. Those three really just the importance this movie plays in those three careers was something that I've thought a lot about since since watching it the other day for the first time. But I did want to talk about the first thing I looked up after the movie was another thing I've actually thought a lot about. It kind of goes into two categories. So the scene where Jessup is on the stand and Kathy is talking to him. It's the famous scene where you get, you can't handle the truth for, for, you know, that's when that scene happens and they're doing this back and forth. Jack Nicholson is so even in all of his delivery, even when he raises his voice and even when he gets angry, his delivery is very even. And so I wondered, had Jack Nicholson ever done theater? Because I think he'd be really good at it. And he hasn't. I was really surprised by that. I was really shocked. There's a lot of very famous actors, especially of his generation, that they go, they do the one Broadway show, they win the Tony for best play, and then they continue on in their movie star life. And 
I was really shocked that he had never actually done a stage production um, because he gives he his delivery is very theatrical where Tom Cruise mm-hmm. and even Demi Moore and Kevin Bacon, like they are in a movie. Here's a question I have for you mm-hmm. is like, what's your relationship to Jack Nicholson before this movie? Like you love the shining, right? Yeah. So definitely like that's my Jack Nicholson performance is the shining, which is so over the top. Um, but and then last year I watched One Flies Over the Cuckoo's Nest for the first time and was a movie I instantly fell in love with and specifically his role in that movie. Also, as we've joked in this podcast, I really love The Departed. Um, I have no real reason as to why this is one of my favorite movies. It just is. But um, obviously he's in that and, and is big in that one. But those are kind of my connections to this uh, to him as an actor comes from specifically The Shining and then also uh, One Flies Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But it's going to be hard for me to dissociate him from this character after this. Yeah, it's it's been interesting as I've kind of like I remember watching this movie for the first time and being like, oh, I should probably like watch more Jack Nicholson things like my relationship to him before I watch this movie for the first time is he's the guy that's courtside at Laker games. <laughs> like he's the famous like that's a it's a thing like everybody's like oh where's jack and and you forget or you don't realize how big of a movie star he is and was his evenness throughout the whole movie the way he delivers lines about blowjobs is almost at the same like pacing and veneer as the lines about like calling a killing like it's so like matter of fact and confident in everything he says, he knows he's the most powerful person in the room, which is that Jessup character. He knows that he is bigger and better and more powerful than Tom Cruise and and especially Demi Moore. And like, every, he doesn't care about those people. He knows what he did is right. So then like at the very end for someone else below him to be like, and I know more that's when he loses it. And even then it's just like, it's not like, oh God, where did this like, it, it was so natural for that to be like the reaction so i watched the movie reds uh for the first time a while ago and it's that's another one of those movies where he's very reserved and measured and calm in the way he's delivering everything and so but because it's jack nicholson you also know he can reach this like searing level of command and so you know it's there mm-hmm. the whole time and he knows that you know it's there because he's been a part of everybody's lives for like 30 years at this point of a few good men and so you're just waiting for him. And Tom Cruise was waiting for him to unleash this, you know, monster that Jessup is pretending to not be. Mm-hmm. And then he does. And I think it's he's also capital A acting. Mm-hmm. But Jack Nicholson is good enough to, like, just accentuate the, like, boiling anger he has in the way he like sneers and in the way he delivers lines about how they should just like move the base off of Cuba because yeah. you know, Santiago wants to move you and you know that he is intimidating every single person that's part of like one the character and how it's written and two and how he chooses to play it. but but anyway uh to to kind of start closing it out here we talked about how Silence of the Lambs is you know, one of the rare movies that wins the quote unquote big five. Um, a few good men. The Oscar record on this one is a little weird. Yeah. So um, 
he, the, it, the movie won nothing, which was another thing that I looked up almost immediately after watching it because I was like, oh, for sure, it won something. And it was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor for um, Nicholson. I think that movie criticism or whatever culture analysis that we're doing here tends to sort of like downplay if you didn't win i think being nominated is an absolute honor and it should definitely go with noting that he uh being nominated was well deserved and uh i think that it it made a lot of sense but i think it's kind of wild that it is not nominated for what becomes adapted screenplay i think now this is the movie that is oscar bait I think it may be like a little ahead of its time. I mean, we literally did just have a courtroom drama with famous people written by Aaron Sorkin that was Oscar bait. <laughs> like we just know, but did this. this. <laughs> but the difference between Trial of Chicago 7 and A Few Good Men is A Few Good Men is good. Oh, no, absolutely. I, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just saying that like this sort of movie as an Oscars movie may not have been um, as common as it was as it is now. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a courtroom drama. There's like, you know, they come dime a dozen. But anyway, like it's the Howard's End, Enchanted April, the player, a river runs through it, and scent of a woman. Like, I don't know. I just feel like one of the things that stands out about this movie and why it warranted a Best Picture nominee is because the screenplay was so great. And I just, I don't know. I just think it's wild that it wasn't nominated. That's all. I just want my, I just want my favorite movies to have like a historical document saying like this is good. Yeah, it's us. This is the historical document, Zach. <laughs> This is documentation. Oscars can't handle the truth. They can't. Um, we anyway, know that. Amanda, I, we've—I haven't asked you this outright, but like, did you like this movie? I did like. This you had movie. a lot of questions about the plot and everything. <laughs> Welcome to my brain. I don't know, but um, I have never been calm a moment in my life. Um, but I did like this movie. It, it's fun to watch actors act like i mean as dumb as that sentence is like watching really good people do the best work between sorkin and reiner and cruz and uh nicholson and unfortunately demi moore was get aaron sorkin a female co-writer just on everything that he does from now on we gotta stop this it's been too long we can't do it anymore Anyway, I did like this movie. Um, it's really good. It does. It, you watch it and you're like, this is an important film. It feels that way the whole time. Um, but would I watch it again? I would watch it again, but I would really have to be in the mood. Like I watched this movie and then I like had to go take a walk because I was like, that was a lot of film. Like I feel like I just <laughs> like read a, like a tome of a novel, but I just watched this movie like it is the longest two hours I have spent in a long time. Oh my! So that's so fascinating. There's just I think so this movie there's just... so much content, like in such a small amount of time, which I know is like a Sorkin, it's a Sorkin thing. But I, I think like watching it with people who hadn't seen it before will be really fun. The last question I had, and this kind of wraps the two together, is: Did you have a performance you enjoyed? more between anthony hopkins and anthony hopkins versus jack nicholson and then also jodie foster versus tom cruise because this is another one of those like young up-and-comer versus this like older either like a legacy established movie star or you know anthony hopkins who will go on to have this career but like is older at this point i think that i liked 
Jack Nicholson's performance the most out of all of the performances out of both of the movies, but I think I like Silence of the Lambs better as a movie. Yeah, it is interesting that you said Jack Nicholson because I think I've I'm more blown away by Anthony Hopkins, but that's probably just because I've absorbed it for the we've absorbed these characters and performances for the first time, mm-hmm. um, and they're both so precise. But yeah. um, Anthony Hopkins as Doctor Lecter and Jack Nicholson as Colonel Jessup turns out really good performances and really good characters. Very glad neither are in our blind spots any longer. But I did want to prep our listeners for what our next episode is going to be. That way you can watch the movies along with us and make sure you've seen them and they are not in your blind spots. So the next theme is going to be following your dreams slash some family dramas. And the movie I am choosing for Zach to watch for the first time is Little Miss Sunshine, one of my favorite movies of all time. And the movie I selected for Amanda is The Place Beyond the Pines. I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite movies of all time, but it was a very influential movie in my young movie watching life i guess i haven't rewatched the place beyond the pines in like five years so i'm really interested to see how i feel about it now excellent well i can't wait thank you so much zach this was a great movie great swap i think we both really liked them uh which is an excellent start to blind spotters i'm looking forward to a time mm-hmm. where one of us watches a movie and be like you know what bad movie <laughs> i think it'll be good for content <laughs> what are these it's gonna happen i'm gonna make you watch the fast and furious movies and who knows what you're gonna think about those who knows people have to uh keep checking in to find out what i think about them but thank you guys for listening follow us on instagram at blind spotters pod we'll have more information about the movies coming up uh up on there and you can follow me on Twitter at Amanda Luberto. And you can follow me on Twitter at Zach Pocklib or follow me on Letterboxd. I'm just going to keep plugging it. One of the two of us has to have a thriving Letterboxd career, and I think it's going to be you. <laughs> Do you have a, a movie hobby podcast if you don't talk about your Letterboxd account? I don't know. <laughs> we'll never know because now we have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye.